three of the Five Star Wellbeing podcast. I'm Arwen from Even Star Wellbeing and I'm delighted to be back hosting this third series of the show. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands on which this show is produced, the Wadarong peoples of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This land is stolen land and sovereignty was never ceded. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Whether you're new or a returning listener, I'm so pleased to have you here. If you're new, there are 49 episodes across series one and two for you to catch up on. There's so much goodness there, so please get into it. My website is evenstarwellbeing.com and you can find all the episodes there as well as all the information you need about my services as a holistic health coach and healer. So on to this new series. Once again, I have wide ranging guest list to bring to you this season to help you feel better, be better and do better in all aspects of your well-being and life. If you enjoy the show, it's super helpful if you share it with others that you think will get something from it. And it's even better if you rate and review the show on the platform that you're listening to it on, because then it will reach more people who you don't know, but who will benefit from listening. So you're really paying it forward. I hope you get enjoyment and even more importantly, education from this series. Be well. Hello there and welcome to episode 57 of the Five Star Wellbeing podcast. I'm Arwen from Even Star Wellbeing and I'm absolutely thrilled to bring you this conversation that I loved having with Neil McKinley, a meditation teacher and mentor. We spend quite a bit of time on the myths of meditation and using this episode to do some myth busting and Neil does that absolutely beautifully. So I hope that you come away from listening with the understanding that meditation absolutely is something that you can do and perhaps even that you are doing without even realizing that you are but that it is a practice that is for everyone and that it has benefits that you perhaps won't even realize either, that these benefits that you have from meditating take go into your life on a really deep level and help you to experience life, I guess, with a, a greater sense of ease, not that it can take away the difficulties of life on a day-to-day basis, but you can process them and go through them and travel your journey with a lot more ease. So I hope that you love this conversation as much as I loved having it. And uh, I hope that you get a lot out of it and come away with a practice that you know that you can do. Okay, welcome everybody. Welcome back to another episode and delighted today to have another wonderful guest for you. I've got Neil McKinley, who is a meditation teacher and mentor. Neil has spent all of his adult life, more than 25 years, but we won't give away your exact age, Neil, um, immersed in the practice of meditation. 
is now a highly experienced meditation teacher and mentor conducting events of more than 100 meditators, both online and in person. He currently teaches from Victoria, BC in Canada, just to define that because I'm in Victoria, Australia. Yeah, wow. (laughs) So, Neil, I'd like to just start with, um, you know, a bit of background about you. I love for people to understand kind of how you get you got to be doing what you're doing now what was what was the path in however much detail you want to give us but it's just interesting to find out how people discover their path um well i think there's two good ways to uh respond to that and before i do that you know thank you for having me here it's a real pleasure real delight i'm really looking forward to this conversation and thank you to everyone who is listening um So how did I find my path? Uh, I think there's two ways to respond to that, both of which are are interesting and informative. One is, how did I come to meditation? And then, you know, another one would be, how did I get to a point, the point where I'm doing what I'm actually doing specifically right now? And that's a little bit more involved, a little bit more detailed. So let's go back to, you know, how did I start to meditate? And uh, I was a competitive swimmer when I was... uh, uh, a child and a young adult. And um, at the risk of dating myself yet again, that puts me in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was a really interesting time to be involved with competitive athletics. Um, what we now, you know, conventionally or commonly will call sports psychology was beginning to edge its way into the mainstream at that point in time. And the coaching staff that I worked with in that that, uh, period was really open to that kind of influence. And so we did all this stuff that, you know, now might seem really tame and, you know, every day Um, we did all this weird stuff. We did goal setting and we did visualization and we did progressive relaxation and we did um, subliminal messaging, which maybe is still a little bit odd, that one. And as part of that suite of of tools that were introduced, uh, we were away at a swim meet uh, um, in Vancouver one weekend, and a bunch of us were staying in a conference room in a hotel with the assistant coach. And the assistant coach on the Saturday night, I vividly remember, it was a rainy, dark Saturday night in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, On Saturday night, he taught us how to meditate. You know, we rolled up our sleeping bags and we gathered all around and he taught us um, how to do a basic uh, mantra based meditation practice. And I don't remember what he said. I don't remember how everyone else reacted, but I do remember there was something about it that was compelling to me. It was like, oh, this is something. You know, I wasn't able to define it, but it was uh, something. And that something was really interesting. It was a draw to me and it kept me doing the practice for a period of years, you know, in a very rudimentary, I don't really know what I'm doing way. It kept me engaging the practice. So that is how I, you know, found my way into meditation was really through um, the doorway that uh, sports psychology of the time opened up. Mm, Great. So that's, you know, how did I get into meditation? And then how am I doing what I'm doing now? Um, Again, that's a little bit more involved. But uh, 
after a few years of of making my way through muddling my way through meditation practice more or less on my own i started to give what i was doing some formal structure and i started to study and practice in a series of two successive communities both of which um, were rooted in tibetan buddhism both of which gave me opportunities to engage formal curriculum and to do long retreats and uh around about 2016 my relationship with the second of these communities really started to unravel um i started to feel uncomfortable with the way the teacher the leader was treating um, students, especially close senior students like myself. Uh, it became apparent to me that in spite of what I believed, in spite of what I was told, in spite of what I as a senior person in that community told others, that what was driving the situation was not the teachings and not the practices, it was not the development and the well-being of students, but it was the self-centered impulses of the leader himself. And uh, the extent he was willing to go to assert these, um, to my eye, created an environment characterized by manipulation, by disempowerment, by disrespect. Um, by way of an example, he was a master of what I call the bait and switch, uh, saying we're going to do one thing, promising one thing, and then switching it out with something else and expecting us all to silently go along as if nothing had happened, um, which, you know, in isolation, I don't think sounds like much, but when the dynamic repeats over year, a period of years and plans and schedules and lives are affected and upended all by an authority figure that um, one trusts who doesn't seem overly concerned with the consequences of his actions, um, the effect is really crazy making. It, uh, what happened to me is it distorted my relationship with my own inner knowing, my own sense of integrity and of what's going on here and now. And by 2019, that distortion got so severe that I was just extremely compromised, both me uh, mentally and physically, and I had to leave. And in 2000, early 2020, February of 2020, exactly, um, I made this difficult and necessary choice to leave, which to the question you're raising, that opened up a path of recovering and recovery and healing for me and discovery and exploration that continues to this day that has actually opened up meditation, my understanding of meditation and my presentation of meditation in a whole new way. Mm -hmm. So were you, so is that when you started teaching though? Um, I started teaching around about 2005 oh, okay. um, after I was a swim coach or after I, uh, my swimming career ended, I hopped out of the water onto the pool deck and I started coaching and I coached mm -hmm. for, I think about 20 years and that ended quite suddenly. And I was sitting at the kitchen table one day with my head in my hands, literally my head in my hands and, you know, saying like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And my wife walked by. She just walked by. I don't even know if she stopped. I just can remember her walking by. And she said, well, you're trained in meditation. Why don't you teach people how to meditate? And it was kind of like, oh. <laughs> so around about 2005, 2006, I started to teach. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, so of course, it's been a long time. Um, but so when you left that community, um, what, so was that kind of, you know, the, 
a real structure for your life and then, you know, so you basically decide to leave and then everything's different. Very much so. I mean, it was a structure for my life. It was a structure for my livelihood because I was uh, mm-hmm. teaching in that context. And mm-hmm. that context was probably responsible for about 60 or 70% of my annual income. Um, it was a structure socially, it was a structure spiritually, financially. I mean, it was a structure that I had, um, uh, on a couple of, you know, kind of turning point occasions made conscious decision to step into in a really deep way. And so, um, when I made that choice, again, a difficult, but necessary choice to leave, um, there was this sense of leaving all of that behind. Yeah. And are you do you still practice Buddhism? I do, yeah, very much yeah. so. You know, the work that I do is still grounded in uh, the Buddhist teachings. I uh, try to use very ordinary, everyday language, so I don't often talk about egolessness or emptiness or anything like that. Mm. But um, the grounding is uh, certainly there in that tradition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, I'm glad you didn't feel like, you know, you had to even give up your your faith, as it were. Well, that was one of the difficult things about the whole situation is, I think, you know, to use your words, giving up that faith, walking away from the teachings and walking away from the practice uh, practices, um, it was tempting. And I know many of my, you know, former peers have understandably done that because, mm-hmm. um, you know, that those were the teachings and practices within that provided the, the context within which this dysfunctional relationship took took uh, shape, um, and for whatever reason, and it really kind of goes back to that you know night in Vancouver, sitting on a sleeping bag, mm-hmm. and meditating for the first time. You know, I felt drawn to the practice in a way I couldn't and still can't articulate, and it's the same thing here. You know, once I left. Um, that community, um, you know, while there was a tremendous sense of relief at leaving, the loss was phenomenal. I had no idea what to do. And much to my surprise, because I can't explain the why of it, I turned to what was familiar. I turned to meditation practice. Mm, Yeah. And so that would have been right at the beginning of the pandemic as well, that you made that decision. And then did that kind of open up that online teaching method? Yeah, very very much so. Um, You know, when I left the community, so we're talking February 2020, Mm. um, when I left that that community, um, it was a survival thing. You know, I needed to get out for my own uh, sanity and survival. So I wasn't really thinking about livelihood, although obviously you know, there's a big, big impact there. Um, when COVID hit, you know, this neck of the woods, and I think it was late March that our lockdowns, our first series of lockdowns started. Yeah, same, so yeah. when COVID hit this neck of the woods in late March, and the remaining 30 or 40% of my livelihood vanished, that's when the financial piece kind of clicked. And, you know, I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I would already been teaching online to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. and I broadened that and started to offer, you know, um, community practice that's now evolved into what is called the online gatherings. 
Mm. So um, can you tell us a bit about that? Because I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of, you know, more than 100 people online meditating together. Like I get, you know, I can um, see in my mind's eye, you know, uh, and feel like what it would feel like in person, obviously, because I've done probably not with more than 100 people, but I've certainly done that. But um, online, just tell us a bit about that. Well, it's actually a really um, wonderful format. And the, the online gatherings are currently smaller than the 100 plus, <laughs> which is something that comes from my past at this point. Yeah. Um, but it, there's a group of, we meet, there's the option of meeting three times a week. We meet on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday uh, Pacific time. And uh, probably at any one gathering, you might see between four and a dozen or 14 people there. And what's it like to actually practice in that way? Um, it's become a really intimate and affecting um, context environment in within which um, we sit together. Um, we used to joke about it initially, but we get to actually sit with people in their lives, in mm -hmm. some little corner of their lives. And we actually become familiar with people in a way that we don't become familiar when we're in person. Not that one's better or worse than the other, yeah. but we get to see um, people's backgrounds. Mm -hmm. We get to see people's homes. We get to see how those change and evolve over time, whether it's, you know, there's a different set of books behind me or <laughs> whether the location has shifted a little bit. And, you know, this, again, this may sound like not much. It may sound like a very, you know, kind of small thing, but it's actually deeply affecting. It's been deeply affecting over the months and years that we've been coming together because in a couple of ways, one, that familiarity, I feel like it begins to um, ease its way into ourselves. And so there's a cell familiarity with one another in an ordinary everyday here's a corner of my bedroom kind of way um, the other way that I think it's really affecting is the ordinary and everydayness of it it really brings the teachings and the practices down to that level and in my experience that's where the teachings and practices are most potent when we um perforate any notion that they might be um, transcendent or divine or separate from the stuff of our everyday life and begin to apply them to or see their relevance in, you know, going to the grocery store, going to the mall, getting up and going to make dinner and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the, the ordinary everydayness of the online context and the fact that we keep meeting you know week after week after week um it has a familiarity that's wonderful and it has a, a kind of grounding quality that i feel is you know if in my experience if we're going to bring meditation more fully into our lives which i think is really the intention of the practice it's not intended to be kept under a bell jar um, if we're going to bring meditation more fully into our lives i think it's important to really um, bridge the sometimes easy to assume gap between those two and the online context actually is a really potent tool in that 
Mm, that is, yeah, really good point. I'm so glad I asked you that question. So I think I better get from you, Neil, what um, your definition of meditation is. Yeah. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that in two ways. Right. Uh, one is, you know, every form of meditation that I know, and I don't know every form of meditation, we're just talking about every form of meditation that I know, shares a central dynamic. And the central dynamic involves taking our wandering attention, our normally wandering attention, and asking it to rest somewhere. And um, again, every form of meditation that I'm familiar with shares that dynamic. Take our wandering attention, ask it to rest somewhere. Where the practices vary is where we're asked to rest that attention. You know, some practices will be asked to rest our attention on a mantra. Some practices will be asked to rest our attention on an image. Some practices will be asked to rest our attention on a candle, for instance. The style of practice that I teach, which is embodied meditation, we rest our attention, we turn toward and settle into the immediacy of our embodied life. So we turn our attention toward our embodied experience. That would be a general and specific definition of meditation. And can you talk a bit more about this embodied experience for people who, like me, I'm not quite sure what you mean when you say that? Yeah. So I used to just say we turn our attention toward the body. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then that, you know, that's great. Okay. So what you're doing is you're taking your attention and you're putting your attention somewhere in the body. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're breathing or your shoulder or your toe, something mm -hmm. like that. Okay. I understand that. I used to say that. And one of the things that became apparent after time was that that language was actually too limiting. It really reinforced a notion of body as a separate isolated ent entity. Mm. which it really isn't. I mean, just on the level of, of breathing, you know, we're constantly taking breath in through the pores of our entire body. And so I started to experiment with different kinds of language and I came to, or I've, I've landed on using this term embodied experience, which is an umbrella term. Mm -hmm. And roughly speaking, that means we're turning our attention toward an inclusive experience of embodiment, an experience that is, in, is inclusive of our body, our personal body, which most of us associate with the term embodiment. Mm -hmm. It's also inclusive of what you might call the relational body of the sense perceptions, what the sense perceptions are and what they know the light in the room, the temperature in the room, the, gar the garbage truck that keeps beeping outside my window as we're talking mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And then it's also inclusive of the uh, body of the earth or the body of the world of which we are a part. You know, this sense of open, steady, still, dynamic suchness. And so we're turning our attention toward the fullness of that. And we may focus on, say, the breath in the lower belly, mm -hmm. but there's always a sense of, okay, this is a focus within a more inclusive understanding of embodiment, uh, uh, an understanding that is inclusive of at least these three layers of um, body. Yep. Okay. Beautiful. And um, talk to us about 
you know, like it is a practice. You have to um, you have to keep doing it, basically, yeah. don't you? So yeah. can you just talk a bit about that? And, you know, people, the question that all, you know, people always ask is, well, how long should I do it for and how often should I do it? Which, you know, the answer I realise is how long is a piece of string? But <laughs> can you just give us your thoughts around that? Yeah. And, you know, I'm pretty much of the the, the piece of string um, school of thinking. <laughs> and um, my grade three teacher, Mrs. McGibbon, I remember um, she was asking us to write, I don't know, a paragraph, an essay, it was probably a paragraph, it was grade three. And I remember I went up and I said, you know, how long does this need to be? And she said, as long as a piece of string. And I puzzled over that for years. I mean, how long is a piece of string? Um but I used to be very uh, more prescriptive, you know, and so I would say, well, an hour a day every day for the rest of your life, which was the instruction that I received however many years ago. Mm -hmm. And there was this interesting thing that happened, you know, so this was an instruction I used to offer in some of the first um, classes I offered in person here in Victoria. And, you know, we would, it would be an eight week series, there would be eight classes. And around about six or class six or seven, I'd start to talk about practicing at home. And, you know, everyone's mostly polite by that point, you know, the people who are there, the people who really want to be and are curious about continuing. And so everyone listened to me and nodded. But I could feel that as soon as I said that everyone kind of got up and left the room, mm -hmm. right? You know, like, <laughs> sorry. And so I experimented, like, what if I say 45 minutes? What if I say 30 minutes? What if I say 20 minutes? And what I noticed is while there was a sense of fewer people psychically getting up and leaving, there were still people getting up and leaving the room energetically, like, okay, the expert has said that meditation must be this way. And I can't do that, or I'm not inspired in that to do that. So I guess it's not for me. Mm. And after a few years of going through that, you know, I'm a little bit slow on the uptake, I guess. But after a few years of going through that, I started to really flip the equation. And rather than having meditation or the tradition or the expert define what an appropriate practice is, I started to explore and experiment with, well, what if our lives, what if our the realities and the inspiration of our everyday lives determined how much we practice? You know, embodied meditation is about trusting our lives as they are. So what if we actually trusted to that as we craft a practice? And so... I, um, when I'm asked that question, I really encourage people to look at the realities of your life. You know, sometimes um, there's just not a lot of time available. Sometimes there's much more. And then look at the level of your inspiration. Some of us are really drawn to practice 30, 40, 50 minutes a day. Others of us are not. And then based upon the dance between those two, Come to an agreement for yourself about what meditation practice is going to look like for you in terms of duration and frequency. So rather than, again, putting the expert first, let's yeah. put our life first. And that, and I really think this is, this is, a, a, it sound, is, a, is actually um, a really, really big point. Rather than putting the expert first, let's put our life first. And at that point, the expert becomes a support. 
for what our lives are. So rather than me say, well, Arwen, you should practice an hour a day every day for the rest of your life. You come to me and say, well, I think I can do like 10 minutes a day, three days a week. What might that look like? Yeah. And, you know, we can talk and craft something that works for you based on that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So if I said that, what would you say? 10 minutes a day, three days a week. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, so um, the practice that I teach um, has can have a lying down component and a sitting up component. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at 10 minutes, that's probably about the minimum for putting both of these two together for having the time. If you're going under 10 minutes, I'd encourage people to either wholly lay down or just sit up. So we begin to look at a practice where you're doing about half lying down and half sitting up, roughly speaking. And, um, you know, I'd encourage you to take the time lying down to just develop a sense of presence, a sense of hearness, a sense of I'm in this room. It's warm, it's cold, there's noise. I'm starting to settle. And once there was a sufficient sense or notable sense of presence, I'd encourage you to come up into an upright position, work with posture, and we could talk that through a little bit, and then begin the practice of turning your attention toward your embodied life, this personal body, this relational body, this earth body, and starting to settle in to that. That would be the rough guideline. And so why do you do the lying down and sitting up? The lying down is really great for uh, slowing down. Mm. It's really easy in my experience to bring the speed and momentum of our everyday lives into our meditation practice right? It's like, okay, I'm done work. I've picked up the groceries. I put away the dishes. I'm going to sit down and meditate. I'm sitting down to meditating. I'm present. I'm putting my attention towards my embodied experience, following the breath in the belly because I need that anchor today. Here I am meditating. Okay, I'm done. I'm going to go make dinner. Then I'm going to pick up, the, you know? Yeah. And so the lying down, because it is so relaxing and restorative, is really conducive to just slowing down, and being quiet, and beginning to let this sense of presence that's built in to who we are uh, bubble to the surface. Mm. And that presence then becomes the context within which we do the sitting up. And so you could say, well, why even sit up? Like, why not just continue laying down? Which, of course, you could do. You could continue lying down. The thing that's advantageous about sitting up is we're beginning to cultivate, um, you know, the kind of turning toward, the kind of settling, the kind of relationship with our own inner being that meditation offers us. We're beginning to cultivate it in an upright way, meaning it has that immediate sense of connection with our everyday life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like a, trend, uh, uh, a way station between the lying down and getting up and going to do the dishes. And so that that sitting up is at the relaxation or the lying down is advantageous from a point of view of relaxation, slowing down, presence. The sitting up is really advantageous because it um, helps us connect the practice, the qualities that we reconnect with through the practice with the stuff of our everyday life. Yeah, I, I really like that. I've never, you know, experienced, you know, doing both. 
in one session. So I think that's really great explanation. Thank you. And with setting up, what what guidelines do you give people about that? Um, I think that if I had to give one guideline, a single guideline, I would I'm probably going to diverge from my assertion that I'm going to do a single guideline here, but I would say ensure that you are sitting up in such a way that your knees are lower than your hip crease. Mm -hmm. What that does is it lets your pelvis tilt forward and it then lets the pelvic floor touch this, whatever you're sitting on, whether you're sitting on a bench, whether you're sitting on uh, the floor, whether you're sitting on a chair, it lets your pelvic floor ground with the earth. Mm -hmm. And then this becomes, you know, kind of like um, uh, one of the keystones of our whole meditation practice and the whole way of living that we're developing here, that sense of grounded connection with the earth underneath. Mm -hmm. And so that would be kind of the, the, the main, the first thing I would say, you know, if people came into a room with me and said, okay, tell me about sitting, let's talk about sitting in a chair, sitting in a chair and meditating. The first thing I would talk about is like, okay, let's adjust the height of this chair. And you can do it with blankets, you can do it with uh, yoga blocks, you can do it if you have an up and downy chair like I do right now, you can do it with that. Um, let's adjust the height of the chair so that your knees are lower than your hip crease so that your pelvic floor is, or so that your pelvis is tilting naturally forward and your pelvic floor is rooted, beginning to root in the earth. Yeah, so for most people sitting cross-legged on the floor, just straight on the floor, that would not be the yeah. case. Yeah, so but maybe if you lift yourself, your pelvis up again on a cushion or a stool or yeah. whatever, then you, yeah mm. and i mean once again let's we're coming back to that notion of uh you, you know we're quietly coming back to this here but i want to reaffirm it we're coming back to that notion of placing our lives and our realities at the forefront and asking the tradition and the expert to kind of support us mm. as we do that and you know the reality is some people are quite comfortable sitting cross-legged and other people are not and yes. so you know, you can sit cross-legged on a floor, you can sit cross-legged on some props, you can kneel on a bench, you can sit in a chair. Um, all of these are completely appropriate ways to sit and meditate. And the one that's best is the one that's most appropriate to you. Mm, yeah. And um, I always remember another meditation teacher saying, you know, you've really got to be comfortable because if you're not comfortable, then, you know, your your focus is going to constantly be drawn to that discomfort and not on this other thing that, that you know, you're trying to focus on as meditation. Yeah, I remember the very first time I did a long retreat. It was a group retreat. And uh, I, I sort of glommed on to one of the people who was sitting up front leading us. And uh, in my mind, somehow decided that that's the way a meditator should sit. And so I spent the bulk of a month trying to emulate them. And I spent about the bulk of a month being completely miserable, not mm. meditating because it just didn't work for my body. Mm. And I was so uncomfortable that the only thing I was focusing on was discomfort. Yep. 
And so, yeah, I think that's a really important point. You know, we need to be reasonably reasonably comfortable. We need to be sitting in a way that actually works for the realities of our embodied lives, for mm. our, the realities of our body. Mm, yeah, and everybody's body is different. So that everybody's that's... body is different. I remember doing a class, and again, it was one of these early classes. It was eight weeks long, and uh, there was someone in the class. They sat right in front of me, and um, the first week they just couldn't stop moving. And uh, week two, three, four, five, six, it was the same thing. But they started to bring props in yeah. addition to what we had available to try and mitigate this. And in week seven, they showed up and they had so many props. They had blankets and they had bolsters and they had wedges and they had foamies and they had rolled up tea, ba tea, uh, tea bags, tea towels. Oh. Um, and I was like, what is going on here? And again, they're sitting right in front of me. So I got a bird's eye view of this. And after about 10 minutes of uh, fussing around with all this, for the first time in like six or eight weeks, they were still. Yeah, And it was so beautiful and so affecting. I mean, the stillness was beautiful unto itself. But the other thing that was so striking for me was the certainty I had that no one in the universe had ever quite sat in that way. <laughs> And uh, it was just a real lesson for me. It really taught me a lot. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'm doing yin yoga teacher training at the moment, and that is just such an eye-opener in terms of how everybody's body is different. There's so much skeletal variation and sitting cross-legged for some people. Yeah, as you said, it's fine. But for many people, it is very uncomfortable. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, so are there any other myths about meditation that you'd like to bust? I love myth busting with meditation. <laughs> um, you know, the first one is that we need to have an empty mind. Mm. Um, I can't tell you the number of times, you know, people have told me they've said something in, in class or some other context. They've said, well, you know, you, you said that meditation needs to have an empty mind and i just can't do that so i guess meditation is not for me and what is interesting is the the depth and pervasiveness of this myth because i guarantee you i've never actually said that <laughs> not once because it is not uh necessary that we have an empty mind we work with whatever is going on for us in this moment and sometimes our mind will be relatively empty and sometimes our mind will be chattering away like you know a chipmunk and um one of these is more pleasant than the other. I will grant you that. But from the point of view of meditation practice, one of these is not necessarily better than the other. What we're doing is we're developing our capacity to turn our attention toward our embodied experience, to settle in and reconnect with some basic qualities in our human being. So it's not really about the thoughts. It's about loosening our grip on the thoughts, certainly, and then letting our attention turn elsewhere while the thoughts are just allowed to do whatever the thoughts are going to do. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll chatter away for a while. They'll dissipate. They'll change. You know, that's the nature of that particular creature. Yep. So myth number one, absolutely myth number one, is it's not necessary to have an empty mind. Um, myth number two is those thoughts that remain, we don't have to get rid of them. You know, again, what we're doing with the practice of meditation is we're loosening our grip on those thoughts. 
and then letting our attention turn elsewhere. And that's an interesting description. And I think it's easy to miss this in the description, but it implies that the difficulties we get into with thoughts is not really the thoughts or the thinking themselves. It's our gripping. Mm-hmm. It's our tendency to grip onto them. And so we're loosening that grip and turning our attention. And then just, as I said, letting thoughts do their own thing, letting mm-hmm. them have the life that they want and need to have whilst Mm. we begin to attend to the immediacy of our embodied lives. Mm. Because we've got to honour the fact that our brain is designed to think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, I mean, because, and I mean, that's a great, a great way of putting it. I often put it, you know, if, if we're going to get into an argument with our thinking mind, we're going to lose. So let's just not do it. Mm, mm. Another way of putting it is the way you put it. You know, just honor the fact that that's what our our mind does. And it's like, well, thank you very much for doing that. I'm going to turn my attention here for the moment. Mm. (laughs) For as long as I can until you can. For as long as I can. (laughs) Um, Okay. Any other myths? I think we've touched upon, um, you know, some others that I may probably helpful to make explicit. One is that, you know, meditation doesn't need to look a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, how it's how it's going to be experienced for each of us is going to be different. Um, another myth that I think is worth uh, pointing out regarding meditation is that meditation actually doesn't relax us which often shocks people because you come to a class and that's one of the first thing people encounter when we do our first meditation session together. You know, it's like, oh, I feel so relaxed. So meditation doesn't relax us. What meditation does is meditation reconnects us with a basic meaning inherent, innate, fundamental sense of well-being and ease that exists within us. There is a sense of well-being and ease that exists within us that is not conditioned by are we having a good day or are we having a bad day? Do we wear glasses or contacts? Is our hair long or short? What meditation does is it turns it helps us turn our attention and settle in and begin to connect with, among other things, that sense of well-being and ease. And it seems like maybe a small um, item to highlight, but I think it's such an important item to highlight. Because in one view, we're somewhat disempowered. You know, we kind of have to use this practice called meditation to create something that's not there, ease and relaxation. In another view, it's very empowering and affirming of who we are as human beings. It's saying, okay, slow down, turn your attention, settle in, and who you fundamentally are is a sense of ease, well-being, relaxation. Of course, we're still going to have those chattering thoughts and the dishes are still going to be dirty and we're going to stub our toes and bang our knees and all the rest of it. Within that, there is this sense of well-being and ease, among other things, that uh, you know we can access at any time. And I think that's a really, really um, important uh, point about meditation. So an important myth to use your words, bust, is that sense that meditation relaxes us. No, meditation puts us in touch 
with a fundamental sense of ease and well-being and relaxation. Mm. And so what other, I mean, that is a big benefit, but are there other benefits that you feel that people take into their everyday embodied lives from having a meditation practice? Yeah, I mean, I think we could talk about that in a lot of different ways. I mean, there is a growing body of um, scientific uh, research that's talking about, you know, the effects on our blood pressure, the effects on our neurological functioning, you know, the effect on, you know, cardiac health and well-being. And I think these are all really, really um, important valuable um, benefits. One of the ones that has been coming up for me a lot, and it's been coming up within the online gatherings, this teaching, online teaching context that we've talked about, um, it's been coming up in my own life, is meditate, in addition to connecting us with this fundamental sense of ease and well-being meditation actually connects us with other qualities that are innate in us as well and so let's go back to the beginning of this interview when we talked about how i became involved in meditation and then how i got to where i am right now and i talked about um this difficult and dysfunctional relationship that i was part of that i left and you know when i uh left as we talked about um, the sense of relief was enormous and the sense of lostness was phenomenal. I just literally didn't know what to do. I didn't have a clue. And for reasons I do not comprehend, I turned towards the familiarity of meditation practice. And so I started to settle into, turn toward and settle into what was happening for me, that lostness. I started to turn toward, not change, not get rid of, not transform, but turn toward it. And as I settled into this more and more, there was this experience of knowing that showed up again and again that often spoke directly to what was happening for me in my life, often spoke directly to that sense of lostness. And this suggested a phase of meditation that I had never really consciously recognized before, one in which I let the wisdom or the knowing or the intelligence that arises out of this settling, this basic intelligence is just waiting to be connected with. I let this wisdom that arises out of settling into the stuff of my life begin to guide and direct me through my life. And I started doing that. It's the silver lining of having no clue of what else to do is I started to actually trust that. So if I was tired, I would rest. If I was lonely, I'd reach out. If I was stuck, I would reach out to my, I would engage my trauma therapist and do a little bit of work there. And what happened through this process is I started to um, heal this deeply damaged relationship with my own inner wisdom and discover that the stuff of my immediate embodied life, even when it's as difficult as the um, you know, calamitous end of a 20-year relationship. The stuff of my immediate embodied life actually has something to say about the direction and purpose of my life. And that, to me, has proven over the last couple of years invaluable, utterly invaluable. 
Um, and I think it's something many of us um, ask ourselves, you know, well, how do I find my direction and how do I find my purpose? And I think there's many, many appropriate, helpful answers to this. And one answer that I would offer is that's something that meditation actually can do for us. That's something that meditation actually offers us is a tool through which we develop a deeper relationship with the stuff of our embodied lives and with the intelligence and the wisdom and the knowing and the guidance and the direction that is innate within that, inherent within that, waiting for us to just connect and follow. Mm. We are so disconnected from it, though, aren't we, in our modern lives? Very disconnected. You know, I think it's the silver lining of, you know, what I went through, I would never wish on anybody. I'll be clear. I would never wish on anybody. It was and it continues to be an extremely difficult um, experience. However, there's a silver lining to it. When with my life being so upended and so uh, disintegrated, by that experience with myself feeling so lost it put me in a place where i had little other to do than trust it because the so much of the known and familiar had just been swept aside mm. and so the silver lining of this calamitous experience is you know it helped me uh perforate i love that word it helped me perforate some of the habitual ways that I normally just dismiss or uh, diminish or distort. Um, so, there, you know, there's been a gift in the uh, difficulty and the calamity as well. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Um, Neil, I Can I go back, Arwen? Sorry to interrupt you. Can I go yeah. back? Okay. Yeah. Myth number five, I think we're on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Myth number five, I think this is something I'd really like to get in here is... I no longer believe that meditation is the solitary activity that I once thought it was. And um, I said that one of the ways I kind of worked my way through, um, I am working my way through um, the difficulties that I've been, that I've endured is the practice of meditation. The other piece that's absolutely essential in this is community. Mm. Um, a lot of the meditation that I've done the last two, two and a half years has been in community. It's been with others. Um, with the end of that difficult relationship and with the arrival of COVID, as we've talked about, all my livelihood vanished. So I started doing things online, which has become the online gathering community now. And in doing so, I got actually to see the brilliant, the articulate, the vulnerable and adaptive ways that others were engaging meditation, certainly, but also meeting the challenges and the difficulties of their lives. What this did for me is again and again, it reminded me or it affirmed for me the existence of this basic wisdom, this basic knowing, this basic intelligence. Some days I could not see it in my own experience, in my own life. I could not believe it in my own experience, in my own life. And then I'd sit down in the online gatherings and I would see it manifest in living color in front of me. And it that affirmation was, was and continues to be um, utterly essential 
it reminds me again and again and again is yes, there's something basic in us that is brilliant and radiant and clear and tender and responsive. There is something in us that is fundamentally uh, fundamentally knowing, and there's something in us that can actually help us find our way forward in our lives in a way that's aligned with the reality of this embodied life. And I couldn't, I could put post-it notes all over our home, and I wouldn't be able to remember it in the same way that I do in a one-hour gap meeting of the online gatherings. I leave those meetings, and I'm like, oh yeah, basic nature, which is you know one of the ways the tradition talks about what we're talking about here. Oh yeah, basic nature. It's real. It's there. I can connect with it. This is one of the points of meditation practice. I can let it begin to flow or guide me into the stuff of my everyday lives. Mm. And so do you kind of recommend that people do some meditation in community rather than just on their own? That's an interesting question. I actually never have, although I would think at this point, I would say if people have the opportunity and one of the great things about the growing um, familiarity with online technology Mm -hmm. is more more of us have more and more of that opportunity. Um, You know, if people have that opportunity, I definitely recommend people take advantage of it because it, it's been transformative for me and I see it as being transformative with those that I work with. Mm. Um, so tell us about your, I mean, I know you've, you've told us how it kind of operates, but, you know, if people want to join you in your online community um, or I think you've got more than one, don't you? What, what, what can they do? Well, um, the the great clearinghouse for, you know, what I'm doing is definitely my website, and that is neilmckinley.com, and uh, I am uh, a rare McKinley that has an L-A-Y at the end of my name, not an L-E-Y. And, uh, you know, take a look at the website, you know, because what I offer on the whole is somewhat broad. There's a lot of different offerings there that you can uh, take a look at and familiarize with. There's a newsletter, which is a really great way to familiarize over time with what's being offered. So if you're so inclined, you know, sign up for the newsletter. Um, It's uh, got upcoming events and teachings and special offers. And it always reminds us when it shows up every month of, oh yes, meditation practice. Well, it's true. I mean, I I ran. I can't tell you the number of times I've run into people um, on the street here in Victoria, and you know, they said, "Oh, you know, you just put out a newsletter. I really enjoyed. It. I, I'm really glad I got that." And I said, "Oh, well, did did you read the blog? Did you like the clip that I included?" And they said, "Well, no, I actually never even opened it." And I said, "Well, what do you like? Why do you appreciate it?" And they would say, "Well." Every month it shows up and it reminds me, oh, yeah, meditation. And I used to be a bit chuffed at this, like, come on, newsletter's a lot of work and there's a lot in there. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized back to this notion of let's put the experts second and our lives first. If that's what people are getting out of it, that's awesome that once a month there's that sense of, oh, meditation. I'm going to give this a shot. And so that would be, you know, my initial suggestion is just go to the website, take a look around, um, take a look at my website or my, my newsletter. If you're so inclined, 
Um, not to pile it on, but if someone's really feeling like, wow, I love the sound of this online gatherings, send me an email, let me know that you've listened to this podcast, and uh, I can send you a one-week free trial to the online gatherings so people can uh, go and give it a trial that way. But oh, uh, the starting point is definitely the uh, the website, neilmckinlay.com. And uh, so if people want to send you an email, they can do that through the website. Yes, there's a contact there too. Yep, yep. Okay, all right. So, yeah, do you, because I realised at the start I said Neil McKinley, but do you just pronounce it McKinley? I pronounce it McKinley and I smiled with tremendous pleasure when you said McKinley. (laughs) I normally check with people before I start recording about pronunciation, but I just thought I just had it. Um, okay. So yeah, so that's great. Cause I was going to say, is there any, um, particular, you know, programs or anything you want to tell people about, but it sounds like it's all on your website. And yeah. if they sign up for the newsletter in particular, then they'll get some, um, some hot tips on special offers and what you're doing. So you, so you run these regular things and then you'll do sort of one-off workshoppy kind of things as well and that sort of stuff. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I do do some in-person uh, stuff here in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, <laughs> but most of my work is now online. The main yeah. piece is the online gatherings, of course. But I also do... Um, semi-regular, you know, monthly mini retreats where on a Sunday morning here in the Pacific Northwest, we do a, uh, you know, three hours of practice together. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, there are other events that do come up less regularly, but they do recur. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, I have really enjoyed our chat, Neil. It's been great and absolutely love all your insights into meditation. And I hope that it um, helps some people to feel, you know, some freedom in the fact that they that they can do this because I absolutely believe that it's something that it's a practice that everybody should in some way, shape or form have in their life. And you've made it, you know, really nice that people can understand they don't have to be doing an hour a day every day by any means. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's really great. I'm really grateful for your for your time today. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you to everyone who's listening for the opportunity as well. Thanks, Neil. So there you have it. I hope you'll take up Neil's very generous offer of a free trial on his online meditation community. So don't forget, hop on his website, send him an email and you'll be able to do that a free trial for a week. I think he offers. I would also like to mention that uh, I did uh, bring up in the conversation that I was doing in yoga teacher training uh, at the time that we recorded that interview and I now have finished and I'm qualified as a yin yoga teacher and this practice is absolutely life-changing. Now we've been talking about meditation here with Neil and this is a slow meditative practice but what is more important then even then the slowing down I believe is the fact that this practice is what will allow you to access your fascia which is the connective tissue that runs throughout your body surrounds every organ every muscle and connects everything together and is where we will most often feel pain so if you feel like you have some kind of muscular pain it's probably in fact a fascia pain 
The yin yoga practice uh, accesses the fascia by holding the poses for a long period of time. So really, I think I'm just going to start to to talk about yin yoga as stretching because that is what it does. But these stretches are long held stretches that really actually get into where you need them to. So I am currently offering free online yin yoga classes whilst I um, build up my teaching skills and ability. Please keep an eye on my social media on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn to be able to see when I'm offering these classes. They're just a little bit random at the moment because at the time this episode will go out, I am traveling and uh, once I get back home again in January, then I'll have regular times. But um, please keep an eye on my social media for when you can join in a free class and I will also be recording them so that you can catch them at a later time, but you do just need to register your interest with me. So until next time, I hope that you feel relaxed, you feel calm and you feel all stretched out. Be well.